Hey guys, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to The Legendarium on iTunes. Uh, check us out at thelegendarium.podbean.com and also write us at thelegendariumpodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to The Legendarium. In this episode, Craig and I discuss Book 4, Chapters 1 through 3 in an episode entitled The Return of the Hobbits with a special guest, Jeff Hewitt, a fantasy author from Georgia. <laughs> How do I hate thee? Let me count the ways. In a different language. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we are very excited that you are here. Hey! Ryan's standard entrance. <laughs> Don't know how that became the standard, but I accept. Alright, that's because you're fabulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so, book four. We're on to book four out of six books. That means that... Book-wise, we're halfway through. Right. Uh, now, page count-wise, we're actually uh, quite a bit more than that. Book four is pretty short, uh, so we're still going to take three casts to get through it, because there's a lot that happens in a short amount of time, but you'll notice the pace really picks up as we go. A lot of good stuff. Um, good. Well, you know, I'm actually really excited about our guest that's coming on, so I want to cut right to the chase and run you through the ringer with Craig's Lord of the Rings trivia. I'm not feeling great about this week, but let's do this. Here we go. Question number one. When we start chapter one, it has been how many days since Frodo and Sam left the Fellowship? Oh, mm, I don't know, four. Three days. Oh, I should have. Why did I hedge? What is the name of the craggy, twisted hills where they are stuck? Uh, I remember the sentence that says that they've now escaped the... I'll take an approximation. I don't remember. I can't remember. It's the Emin Wheel. (sighs) What is Frodo's chief reason for wanting to escape the Emin Wheel? Uh, Because he feels that the eye could see him. Correct. Yes. One for three. What oath does Gollum take that convinces Frodo that he is sincere? Uh, He swears by the precious. Yes. All right. Alive without breath, as cold as death, etc., etc., where have we heard this poem before? In The Hobbit. It's the riddle that Gollum gave to Bilbo. That's right. What does it take in these chapters to reduce Samwise Gamgee to tears? I don't remember. He actually cries after Frodo's speech uh, when he says that it's likely that it's it'll be all they can do to get to the Mount of Fire and that they're probably not going home. Oh. Uh, Gollum didn't know, or maybe he just wouldn't tell, the name of the pass that he intends to take Frodo and Sam through, but the narrator does tell us what it's called. I don't remember. Kirith Ungol. Uh, oh, I do remember that now. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> no, that's the orcish word for fire. Oh, my bad. Uh, to test whether Gollum is really asleep or just faking it, Sam whispers a word into his ear. Fish. <laughs> that's, that's probably pretty accurate what are sam's two nicknames for the separate halves of Gollum's personality stinker and slinker that's right for a bonus point uh can you name which one corresponds to which personality um slinker is i'm gonna i'm just gonna have to guess the slinker is smeagol stinker is Gollum. that's right good guess what name is mentioned that seems to put Gollum in a pretty bad mood what name hmm I don't know. That of Aragorn. Oh, that's, yeah. Hunted him for a while. 
Well, good job. Uh, I think you got three or four, probably. I got f- five, five and a bonus. Five and a bonus? Okay. Uh, well, here's your real bonus, and you would not get this by reading this particular reading, so best of luck to you. Translate, Kirith Ungol. Um, based on other translations we've had so far, I'm going to say Passage of Death. Mm, close. It is a passage. It means cleft. Kirith means cleft. And Ungol means spider. Cleft of the spider. Oh. Or pass of the spider. Foreshadowing. So, if... Well, I mean, we're not really being foreshadowed because we're not told that. But True. If Frodo had known that name, I'm guessing he wouldn't have... Agreed know, to Been it. so quick to agree. Anyway, well, good job. Uh, so, what did we decide your score was? That would I'm going to go up to say five. Five out of ten. All right. Five out of ten. So let's go ahead and bring on our guest and see just how he does. So on the line today we have Jeff. Jeff, introduce yourself. Hi, uh, my name is Jeff Hewitt. I'm an independent author from North Georgia, uh, nearest to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, I'm married to Megan. She is an LPN. And we have three dogs that are all pretty much a handful. And the internet favorite, Corgi. Whose name is Sophie? Oh man, <laughs> Corgis. There, there's a reason that they're a favorite. So you're an uh, an online author. Uh, what uh, do you have a specific blog that you write for or anything? Uh, I'm independent totally. Uh, I did write an article for Cracked, which that, was uh, hilarious. That's how I found him. <laughs> obviously, you guys uh, found me uh, through there, um, and I maintain a blog at jeffhewitt.net that is sporadically updated but does contain information about me and and where you can find stuff i've written and as i understand it you've written some novels correct yes i've written two young adult fantasy novels sweet they are available directly from my website probably i'm working on that (laughs) uh, also definitely available on amazon.com oh well excellent hedge um (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, play your cards right, and maybe we'll uh, book club those on the Legendarium at some point. That would be fun. Uh, well, cool. Uh, we're glad to have you here. Are you ready to take a stab at Craig's Lord of the Rings trivia? I am, and uh, please be gentle. There is no hedging here. There will be no <laughs> mercy. Uh, okay, so, book four, chapters one through three, here we go. Question number one, when we start chapter one, it has been how many days since Frodo and Sam left the Fellowship? It wasn't very many. Is it four days? Oh, man, you're both wrong in the same way. Uh, Three (laughs) days. Uh, What is the name of the craggy, twisted hills where they are stuck? Phone a friend? (laughs) (laughs) We're not that high tech. (laughs) They're called called the Emin Wheel. Um, What is Frodo's chief reason for wanting to escape the Emin Wheel? It's leaving them... In the wrong direction. I think he feels exposed. That's right. That's what we're looking for. He feels like he's being watched by the great eye in Mordor. Yes. Uh, what oath does Gollum take that convinces Frodo that he is sincere? Uh, he swears on the precious to obey the master of the precious. That's right. Uh, and a rather ambiguous oath, one might say. Yes. We'll come back to that. Uh, <laughs> okay. Here's a quote for you. Alive without breath, as cold as death, etc., etc. Where have we heard this poem before? Well, Gollum did it. Is that a... This is this is not the first time Gollum has recited this riddle. No, that would be from The Hobbit, then. That's right. 
what does it take in these chapters to reduce Sam to tears? Hmm. <laughs> oh, um, hmm. I'm thinking, I just, I recall the scene. He put his head, he, like, he, he's like hugging Frodo, and he's not above crying. That's right. Um, is that when he pulls him up off the crag? No, he um he uh, Frodo gives a little speech that says that we may not make it back alive. Oh, that's, yeah, that's right. Um, all right. So Gollum didn't know or wouldn't tell the name of the pass that he intends to take Frodo and Sam through, but the narrator tells us, and that it is called. Son of friend. Kirith Ungol. to test whether Gollum is really asleep or just faking it Sam whispers a word into his ear what was it? fish that's right Uh, (laughs) there are oh sorry what are Sam's two nicknames for the separate halves of Gollum's personality? oh 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 um it's like it's like Slinky and Winky, even though I know it's not. <laughs> you're you're on the right right path. That's there. like the uh, Nickelodeon version, I think. <laughs> uh, Slinker and Stinker is oh, what we're going for. So close. Uh, and then there is a name mentioned that uh, seems to put Gollum into a pretty bad mood. What was that name? Aragorn. That's right. All right, so five out of ten. I think you're right on par with Ryan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so both of you set a mighty high bar. And uh, I do have one bonus question for you. Uh, now, this is not from the reading. This is just to test uh, just how dorky you really are. So we're we're going to kind of put the screws to you in that way. Translate for me, Kirith Ungol. Oh, um... And Google Translate does not help. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't do so well with Elvish, surprisingly. Nice just read that and it, it pains me to realize that the word is in my head but not not the translation um kirith meaning pass and ungol meaning death pass no pass <laughs> you both said the same thing i call it Again. the passage of death too so <laughs> uh ungol means spider it is the pass of the spider uh clever tolkien and his foreshadowing right <laughs> it's like we are a clone like... We are so... You don't understand how in sync we are with our answers and everything. It's a little disturbing. But on the plus side, Ryan, if anything happens to you, I've got a backup. Uh... (laughs) Foreshadowing. Um, All right. Well, good job. You know, it was a decent showing by both of you. This was hardly the easiest edition of Craig's Lord of the Rings trivia ever. I tried to stay away from too many names and tried to do events, but sometimes those are harder than the names. So. I agree. Um, well, no, good. No one will believe I've actually read these, and they'll call me a fake gamer girl. Fake <laughs> gamer girl. Well, well, I mean, you do sound quite feminine. I imagine so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now you were you were. Uh, if you want to convince us that you read, then expound on something you were mentioning earlier before we uh, brought you on the air. Um, you had you said that it's uh, what been a little while since you've read Tolkien and, yeah. and had some preconceived notions or something like that that were dashed. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I remember, I, I've, I, of course, read them in high school. I, I think everybody like us has, and then probably again in college. But uh, coming back to it again uh, for the podcast, uh, I remember Tolkien as being incredibly dry and difficult to read. And on this time around, it is it, it comes off much more as vivid and alive. Just the way uh, 
it, it's not at all. I mean, like it, it still reads as contemporary fiction to me. Like some of the way, like the, especially the way some of the things that Sam says, like, well, we won't get a lift into the, you know, the black gates. And I'm like, how long have been people saying get a lift? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, that, that caught my attention too. A bit of an anachronism, I think. And so it just, um, it kind of stunned me to realize how much more vivid the language really is uh, this go around. So uh, I'm definitely going to be rereading through them again uh, to kind of rediscover these uh, with, a, I guess, a more mature eye. Well, that's the beauty of the podcast. Uh, hopefully you can go back and, and start the trilogy again from the beginning and, and we will shepherd you through. We will guide you by the hand. Excellent. Um, into all sorts of uh, meandering paths. We'll, we'll definitely talk like we know what we're saying. <laughs> um, well, cool. Uh, Jeff, anything else from these uh, chapters that you wanted to bring up? Anything that caught your attention? Um, uh, anything at all? Well, I remember in... Oh, let me find it. The Taming of Smeagol, there was another bit of foreshadowing, but damned if I can find it now. <laughs> um, I can't help you. I don't. Yeah, do... I think I, I think it may have been the uh, reference to the past of the spiders because the ter- narrator is like, "Well, they don't know what it means, but I do." Yeah, yeah, I really like that. I kind of like when he steps back and nudges you a little bit. He did it yeah. a lot more forcefully in the Hobbit, but he does it every once in a while in the Lord of the Rings too. Mm-hmm. Um, that, well, and, uh, good. They're, um, they're wall. They're climbing. Uh, kind of struck me. Well, actually, you know what? Uh, the climbing, of course, because they're hobbits, so they're not very tall, and I'm afraid of heights, so I just can't imagine it being you know, three times as bad. <laughs> um, but what really struck me is, uh, of course, everyone will be mindful uh, mindful of the movie version's portrayals of Frodo, and I think they did Frodo a disservice because he comes off a lot more... Uh, uh, re- I mean, obviously, Reluctant Hero is kind of the name of the game, but much more reluctant and weak, whereas Frodo in these chapters at least, still comes across as a very strong character. Yeah, he's got that kind of noble aspect that uh, that Aragorn exhibits every once in a while, right? Where all of a sudden the people look at him and he's like, they, he looks like a lord of some sort. It's like, mm-hmm. of perhaps some a sort ring. of ring. <gasps> Absolutely. Like, just like the scene just now where um, he's like, yeah, I'm going through the Black Gate, whether or not you really want to come. And, and it's exactly so. They say, you know, Golem's like, wow, he's kind of a... Kind of a lordly figure. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I really like that part. And, you know, I um, I can't fault Elijah Wood. I thought he did a fantastic job. Um, but, you know, as far as casting and directing go, I suppose there could be some argument made that uh, maybe they could have found a better fit. I don't know. But I liked him okay. I had this exact I, same I thought. thought. Did, well, I would probably blame direction, uh, not knowing a lot about films, but it's like, should I act like I'm, I'm strong and can do this because I'm just a hobbit? And he's like, no, 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 no. Act like you're really on, on you like you don't want anything to do with this. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. Well, I think it is. I, I imagine that they were trying desperately to beat the drum of the ring is a burden. Right, yeah. and so they couldn't allow him any moments of of strength or clarity because they wanted it to be a crisis the whole way through up to the climax. Yeah, I actually That's had a, a fair interpretation. I had a very similar thought about what you were talking about as I was reading through, um, and then there's there's actually a passage in there where I believe they're walking through the marshes and they're talking about Sam looks at Frodo and that Frodo um, uh, he's he's slowing down because. Uh, it seems that he just seems to be ever uh, as they get closer, he seems to be more and more burdened mm-hmm. and slower and everything. 
And I thought that's where it comes in. But I think they did it too early in the movies. I think they made him too overburdened too quickly in the films. Right. Yeah. So there's not could, as much progression. Um, he definitely is, is comes off as a lot more weaker in the in the films. I think he does in the books, at least at this juncture. So, Jeff, I've got a question for you. Um, as an author yourself, uh, and you know, as a human, I think. Uh, as far as we know, is there anything from these three chapters that you read? Anything that you want to point out that might explain why the Lord of the Rings is so fervently adored? Um, I, w- I really wish I'd gotten out a highlighter because now I feel ill prepared, but. Uh, it's my wife's copy, so I don't know how well she'd take mm. that. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's uh, it's all it, you know. Of course, it's timeless, but uh, I think the again rediscovering it as incredibly vivid language. Uh, again, Sam comes off as incredibly uh, incredibly modern to me, especially uh, in the next chapter where they 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 cook and he yells at a uh, golem about. Potatoes, and, you know, in the movie, the inflection's potatoes, and you're like, oh, that's, you know, that's that's super modern. There's no way that that's in there, and then it actually is written that way in the book. And so, I think Tolkien's language, uh, the use of his language and everything, uh, is has that timeless quality. It doesn't really matter that it's an epic fantasy set, you know, kind of loosely based on pastoral pastoral England. It's just well written. It's beautifully crafted. It's incredibly vivid. Um, again, coming back to it and thinking before that it was dry is completely wrong. And uh, you can and, and people will say, you know, cla- I love classic literature, and they're all, they're all damn liars because it's boring. But <laughs> this stuff, it, you know, is is written so well and so beautifully that I think it maintains that kind of cla- uh, uh, ageless ageless quality just because of how beautifully written it really is yeah i agree and you're not the first of our guests to bring up the the language of tolkien in fact ryan and i bring it up every once in a while uh and i agree i think there's he uh hops back and forth sometimes between the majestic um kind of medieval language uh the very high and mighty stuff and then and then uh steps down into the like like you mentioned sort of the uh uh rural sam mm-hmm. and how he speaks you know and, and so i some people i think would find that uh uneven and it would take them out of the story uh but you know i guess not everybody's gonna love everything and for me it works beautifully i think yes. he he uh treads that path very well and his characters are, are so well realized because uh, you you can tell and, and it's often a, a good a mark of good fiction uh, hopefully I can do it one day and then when characters are talking you don't really need uh, dialogue tags because it's obvious who is oh yeah and Tolkien yeah, does that wonderfully well good hey Jeff we appreciate you coming on um, you're a good sport and uh, I want you to tell us one more time what your website is okay uh, again it's a uh, www.jeffhewitt.net uh, there's nothing too fancy about the spelling just j-e-f-f-h-e-w-i-t-t.net and what are the names of your books a reflection of glass and at the end of all magic uh-huh uh well we will be looking into those um again thank you for coming on and uh we will keep in touch
Yeah, thank you kindly for having me. I'm definitely going to catch up on the podcast because I, I want to read this as you guys do. This has been a, a really fun experience. Thank you so much for inviting me. You're welcome. All right. Well, that was good. Yeah, I felt very good when all of my answers came back the exact same with him. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Uh, I was trying to hold it back a little bit, but uh, yeah, that it it's great to have a replacement. Yeah, don't feel Wait. too bad though. <sighs> Just have to make sure my life insurance policy's crap. So <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could never replace you. Um, in fact, speaking of speaking of being irreplaceable. I have to thank you, Ryan, for being born into this world. You're very welcome. Um, and now it's your turn to thank me for that, too. Well, well Craig, I want to thank you for coming into this world yes, a few days before I did. That's right. To, prep, <laughs> to prepare the way for me. <laughs> very John the Baptist of me, right? Um, well, yeah, Ryan and I share very close birthdays. And in true Hobbit fashion, I thought it would be a good idea for us to uh, celebrate our birthdays by giving each other gifts this mm-hmm. year. Uh, now, first of all, before we give our gifts, um, do you want, now, as neither of us actually imbibe, do you want sparkling apple grape or do you want sparkling apple cider? You know, I think the apple grape has a little more of the uh, the vintage taste that bit, I'm looking bit more for. Of a kick. <laughs> all right. So for me, it's the sparkling cider. And there's your uh, slice of Oreo cake. Uh, I'm going to be enjoying my slice of strawberry cake. Uh whilst we you're just trying to fatten me up that's true i well i want you to have a heart attack so that uh, i can get your replacement in here <laughs> i'm not letting this go you just want the equipment i see how it is <laughs> that's right oh, oh no we need the up. <laughs> <laughs> and that folks is called planning ahead that's good radio all right there's a bottle opener we Found got it. it we're taken care of uh so you know, pop the commence drinking let's see all right there's my uh-huh. Love that fizz. Okay. So, um, yeah, like hobbits, we're going to... I'm not giving you a gift for your birthday. You're giving me a gift for your birthday. That's right. I'm giving you a gift for my birthday. Um, Now, it's my hope that you don't already have this. Uh, So, here's yours. Oh, there's a lot of pieces in this. Can you hear this? I hope it wasn't fragile. (laughs) It was. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the sound you just heard is the Lord of the Rings trilogy edition of Risk. Yes. You know I'm going to destroy you in this. Yes. Well, well, you know that I'm your nemesis in Risk because I'm the one person who can send, manage to roll like sixes, you know, four times Constantly. in a row. Jerks. Yes. Well, mine is uh, still nerd-themed, but I actually stepped away from uh, the Lord of the Rings theme a little bit here. Sacrilege. How dare you. So I found the biggest bag I could. Uh, (laughs) Yes. All right. William Shakespeare's Star Wars by Ian... Is it Desher? 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 Desher, whatever. Desher. Verily, A New Hope. Yes, it's the A New Hope script done entirely in iambic pentameter and Shakespearean verse. (laughs) They recently released The Empire Strikes Back as well. So now... I have a copy of the script. You have a copy of the script. We can do a dramatic reading of a scene from Star Wars at some point in time. Oh my gosh. Enter Luke Skywalker. C-3PO, I say. What dost thou there? At what game playest thou, O jolly droid? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I am fair amused. Good sir. This that is the uh, brother that was never talked about between Boromir and Faramir. Faramir. I am fair amused. (laughs) 
Uh, boy, this this cider's going straight to my head. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Well, good. Whilst we enjoy our uh, birthday treats, let's go ahead and uh, actually move on with our podcast, shall we? Yes. Um, well, so with our, our 12 points today, I've got six, um, and uh, you have six, I assume. Yes, uh, actually, now, this is the first week I have more than six. Oh, do you really? Yeah, I may not get to them all, but I have more okay. than six. Well, why don't we go quick fire and uh, you go ahead and start. Okay. First thing I wanted to do is actually it's a personal note as to why I really loved the opening of this section uh, when they get to the cliff and they decide to climb down the Emmon wheel. Um, Sam engages in what is called free climbing. Oh, yeah. And I am, I, I enjoy rock climbing. I I do... Uh, participate in the activity that is slightly crazy and what sam did was beyond stupid <laughs> just uh crawling over the edge you just kind of throw yourself over the edge no i'll go first that uh and i love how it's uh acknowledged as well this was one of the bravest and the stupidest things that sam ever did in his whole life yeah and and that's saying something considering he throws himself at all these you know he's the first to attack different characters or different uh you know, monsters or whatever that have happened. This right here, throwing himself over the edge of a cliff just to, you know, so he doesn't fall on Frodo. His whole reasoning <laughs> for going first is so, well, there's no point in both of us dying going down, so let me go first so I don't knock you off the mountain. Uh, I enjoyed this section. I enjoyed just reading them coming down reason. because I was very much a, like, oh, they're, they're trying to rock climb with an elven rope. This is this is interesting. So Well, good. I um, Yeah, I thought of you when I was reading that. Um, so I have, uh, let's see, what's my first point? Uh, uh, okay. It's tough whenever I get to this section of the book to kind of switch modes because you just got done with the Riders of Rohan. You went to Helm's Deep and Isengard. Everything happening is very grand. And then we switch and suddenly it's these three little tiny figures Mm-hmm. Moving across, you know, this land pretty slowly. A lot of conversation, not a whole ton of movement. At least, you know, not that's described. Uh, anyway, did you find that a difficult thing to to kind of switch over? Not difficult. I actually found it slightly refreshing, although I love the heroic side of mm-hmm. with the Legolas and Gimli and Aragorn and everything. Um, those characters do feel very grand, very epic. Uh, with Sam and Frodo, I, I feel a little more relation to what's going on with them, with the idea of I have a task to complete and it's not likely that I'm coming back, you know. Yeah. I feel like that every Monday when I go into work. Um, <laughs> sure you do. But, no, that's, uh, I found it actually a nice change of pace a little bit to feel more interest in a specific uh, couple characters rather than the events of what's going on around them. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um and it's uh, another thing that happens for for me, and I think for a lot of people as well, is that it's confusing to uh, it's confusing the timeline. Um, you know, you get done with Helm's Deep and Isengard, and then suddenly you have to go back in time to when Frodo and Sam left the Fellowship, right? More or less. But one thing I do love is that Tolkien throws these little bits in to let you know what is happening simultaneously in the section that you just read. Mm-hmm. So while, let's see, what's one of them? Uh, storm clouds pass over Frodo and Sam when they're trying to get out of the Emmon Wheel. And then it describes the storm clouds kind of turning and heading out westward and the riders of Rohan as they are um, riding west, presumably to Helm's Deep. They see these storm clouds coming in. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm 
pretty sure that's the same storm that drenches the Battle of Helm's Deep. Oh. Um, anyway, uh, then the other one was uh, when Frodo's trying to make his decision about whether to follow Gollum to Uh It's mentioned that Gandalf at that moment is at uh, Isengard talking to Saruman, but thinking of Frodo and his mm-hmm. quest. Anyway, yeah. so thank you, Tolkien, for making things as easy as possible for me. <laughs> easy to connect the dots. Okay, um, my next point question here actually has nothing specific to do with this section or reading or whatever. It was just something that I've noticed as we've been reading along as a, as a more generic piece here. Sure. Is there currency in Middle-earth? Ooh, good question. Because in a lot of different books in, uh, that I read, there's there's usually a form of currency that they talk about a little bit, um, whether it be, you know, just gold and silver or whatever. Right. Um, in this, I have yet to really, other than the the treasure that Bilbo has, I've yet to have any sort of reference to money or anything. So how is it, and what brought this thought on is uh, Sam actually talking about, you know, we only have this much food. I'm like, well, why don't you go buy, wait a minute, do you have food? You know, do you have money to buy food? Where are you getting all your supplies? And every time beforehand, it just seems to be given to them. It's like, yeah. we need a horse. Here's a horse. Here's a horse. Well, in Bree, they, it, uh... It costs them a certain amount of money, right, to get the ponies. I guess that's true. Um, so I think, it, you know, I, it is logical that there must be some currency system. I suppose some places could just be based purely on trade. Mm-hmm. But I think maybe something like currency would be... It's like sex in Middle-earth. Sure, it's got to happen, but Tolkien's not going to bother with it. You know, he's mm-hmm. not, this is not why he's telling the story. And so he's not going to take, he's already going on for, you know, a thousand pages. Yeah. He's not going to spend any more time to talk about, you know, the detailed currency system that they're using. That's And that's exactly kind of why, why I found it so interesting that there wasn't one is because he is so detailed in so much else of his story why something like that wouldn't be in there so not not a criticism just more of an observation like i was curious if there was a currency in middle earth yeah so. all right so i got a question for you what for you was the most interesting thing about the dead marshes and then i'll tell you mine the lights the lights the lights so the the little dead bodies in the in the water or the lights themselves well the this is actually one of my points so we'll combine the two and make okay, it easier go ahead um i found that the the fact that these dead bodies um, create l- uh, little candles, as Gollum calls them, or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the hobbits go down and you know, light, their light own, little candles, candles of their own. I love it. It's so creepy. Yeah, um, I found it interesting uh, that they would that they would use that. And for me, just this whole thing. Normally, you think when you talk about a marsh or a swamp or whatever, um, black, yeah, uh, just constant gunk everywhere, whatever. Um, but in this, there's the, these lights that lead you to doom essentially yeah and for in every other part of the show or the the show the, the story <laughs> in every other part of the story light generally is a something good you're yeah, looking for safety. the dawn of it it's, yeah but this is a false light that leads you to Ooh, doom i like this oh man that's why i love that so that was the thing about the marshes that uh, I didn't really feel I got in the films or anything. I was like, oh, this is awesome. Why aren't there little, like, floating lights yeah. and stuff? So I've read this over a dozen times, and I've never thought of it that way. That's awesome. I love that. Um, false hope or something. Um, I loved uh, that same scene when they 
when they do look into the lights or they follow the lights and they see the dead faces under the water. Um, just the creepiest, amazingest imagery. I love it. Um, and then the fact that we see men, elves, and orcs side by side is another thing that I really enjoy. Because for the rest of the story, uh, forward and backward, it seems like Tolkien really he dismisses orcs. Uh, if they die, we don't know and we don't care what happens to them. The the trees at Helm's Deep kind of gobble them up. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Um, the Their heads get lopped off and their, their troop just leaves them behind, right? Whereas men and elves, you know, if they come to an end, it's a very glorious end. And they have to build a mound in their honor and, you know, whatever else. But here in the Dead Marshes, it's very egalitarian. You know, there was this huge battle a long time ago. What they were fighting over, uh, well, there are stories, but he doesn't really say. We're not really sure. The only thing that we know now is that all of them came to the same end. Mm-hmm. And they're all just sitting there side by side underneath these marshes. I think it's just fantastic. That's quite cool. And one of the things that I think it really actually could lend to how large of a battle we're looking at at that time mm-hmm. on the uh let's see the field of Daggerlad. whoa nice thank you yes i was expecting that to be a trivia question so the battle plane <laughs> but i i thought it was interesting because you're right throughout every other section of the story usually they'll separate you know either the orcs will be left or whatever but they'll take the bodies of mm-hmm. the riders of rohan or whatever and they'll create their own burial mound in this case it says that this battle was so large and so epic and that this expanse that they're walking over has to be so big that there just wasn't the option of burying people. Yeah. They just, I'm sorry, we have to leave them here and let nature take its course here. Well, and I like how um, somebody asks, maybe Frodo or Sam asks, is this a device of the enemy? Is this Sauron like his magic kind of bringing them their images back to mm-hmm. haunt the marshes so that you know you deter the northern passage or something and we're not told if that's what it is it could be that or it could be some other sort of ancient magic that kind of keeps their images there cuz they're not really there right cuz gollum what gollum says he says yeah i tried to get to him once i dived into the water and they're too deep or something or yeah. you know it's just they're just phantoms or whatever mm-hmm. i can't you can't get to him so I thought that was fascinating, and uh, I love that it's left up to us to decide how this came to pass. Yeah, it's a very cool section for for what is otherwise a rather bland walking across the what could be just walking across the marsh. Yeah. It becomes a very intriguing section because of that. Well, let me add one more thing onto that. Um, anybody who knows, um, you know, a, a little bit about the backstory of the writing of the Lord of the Rings. Or has watched the uh, extended editions of the the DVDs, then you know that this passage is all about uh, his recollection of the trenches in World War One. Mm-hmm. He would uh, he could recall you know these foxholes that would get blown into the earth, and so you have this thing that's gradually filling up with water, uh, and then there are dead bodies at the bottom of it, and you know they're just laying their face up with their eyes open. And he would see these bodies, right? And, uh, you know, that's super creepy. I can't even imagine living with that image in my head. Mm -hmm. Um, And to turn it into an excellent passage in a book is, you know, beyond my imagination. But anyway, uh, the reason I bring that up is because if anybody 
yourself included, is interested in reading more about Tolkien's experiences in World War One, there is a book out there. It's called Tolkien and the Great War. It is The name of the author escapes me at the moment. I can look it up. I'll throw it on the website or something. But um, it's, it's a wonderful book. Very well researched. Very detailed. Um, if you're interested at all in Tolkien, you'll find it fascinating. Also, if you're interested at all in World War One itself. It's a really great read. Because it's something we don't really talk about much. It got overshadowed, I think, by World War Two, mm-hmm. And so we don't really talk about it. We don't really learn about it. Um, but there were some really interesting things that happened. And so to read about World War One through the perspective of one person, or in this case, it's a it's him and his three friends, so this small group of, of people who went to war, uh, it's a great read. Highly recommended. Tolkien okay. and the Great War. Sounds good. I have to admit, and this is on a on a slightly lighter note, when I was reading through the marshes and he talked about the candles, mm-hmm. I had a very uh, odd moment where I decided I, I really should listen to Elton John's Candle in the Wind. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it would totally change the entire feeling of the thing and if that was playing. And you just changed the entire feeling of the whole podcast. Like, yeah, this is it was a great book and everything. Candle in the Wind. There you yeah, go. Very nice. It's a very nice song. I'm listening to like this super dark Swedish electronic music, you know, <laughs> in my headphones while I'm reading this. And Ryan's like listening to Elton John. Yeah. It's because I had to listen to Crocodile Rock the other day. Just nice. happened to come back up. Okay. I want to talk. Uh, we've, we've moved into the marshes, but I'm going to step back into the moment that they capture Smeagol. Mm. And they make him swear an oath. This is one of the few times in the story that I have found that there is actually a description of what the ring, uh, what the power of the One Ring is. Oh, what okay. It has. Ooh, I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Because Frodo remembers the line. Um, I have to, uh, it's One Ring to, to bring them all, and in the darkness bind, bind them. them. And that stu- it stood out to me this time. <clears throat> Generally, I hear the phrase to bind them and. Like, you know, they're in, they're enslaved, they're all required to obey my will or whatever. But in this case, the power of the ring actually legitimately, like they talk about, it's has a, enough of a hold on Gollum or Smeagol that it will literally bind him to his word. Yeah. And so it's like, this is one of the few times where I actually think, oh, there's that's one of the powers of the ring, is it actually forces someone, if there's a something sworn on it or, or a power or... Uh, uh, a promise made mm-hmm. to that uh, to the bearer of the ring, they are compelled to b- obey it, even if they change their mind. Yeah, uh, awesome observation. Again, something that I'd never really thought about. I always kind of skipped over it, and it brings up the ambiguity of the oath. Exactly right. And so, like you say, he's compelled to what was it? He has to protect the ring, uh, and he has to serve the master of the precious. Mm-hmm. And neither of those require Frodo to be alive. Exactly. Nice. I loved his discussion with himself on that. Yes. But we could be the masters. <laughs> that was not me. Um, good. Wow. Okay. Uh, should I go on with mine or do you have yeah, more? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. So to anyone who questions Tolkien's ability to write, I would point out the passage when Frodo and Sam and Gollum emerge from the marshes and they see the the blasted land in front of Mordor. So now I have to get there. Um, Page 617. 
So it's a paragraph that I'm going to read. Now, Tolkien could really write, in my opinion. I am not much of a narrator, so bear with me. Um, okay. Frodo looked round in horror. Dreadful as the dead marshes had been and the arid moors of the no-man lands, more loathsome far was the country that the crawling day now slowly unveiled to his shrinking eyes. Even to the mirror of dead faces some haggard phantom of green spring would come, but here neither spring nor summer would ever come again. Here nothing lived, not even the leprous growths that feed on rottenness. The gasping pools were choked with ash and crawling muds, sickly white and gray, as if the mountains had vomited the filth of their entrails upon the lands about. High mounds of crushed and powdered rock, great cones of earth fire-blasted and poison-stained, stood like an obscene graveyard in endless rows, slowly revealed in the, in the reluctant light. Oh, are you kidding me? That is that is beautifully crafted. What a passage. I just, every time I get to that, especially the line about um, uh, what the, the mountains had vomited the filth of their entrails. Oh, I love that. It's, it's disgusting, it's terrible, and it's wonderful at the same time. And so ominous. Yeah, and it's, um, it, I, we talked about this already a little bit. I think I mentioned this with Isengard, um, but his ability to take you to a place. And, you know, he doesn't have to describe every rock or every branch, but the feeling that he gives you when you're in a certain place just makes you want to be there. Even if it sounds like the worst place in the world, mm-hmm. you just want to experience it. And I think this is a huge part of the power of these books and why they're so popular. It's because it just, it's pure, wonderful escape. It's true. He really can paint with all the colors of the wind. Get out. <laughs> I'm sorry. It popped into my head as soon as you were talking about him painting. I just... He could probably even paint with all the candles in the wind if That's he that. really wanted to. That's true. I'm Okay. Um, one of the other... Th- By the way, how long were you sitting on that one? As soon I as saw you, you start to smile. As soon as you saw me <laughs> laughing and uh, myself, I'm like, i got to let him finish his point, but I am so going to let that fly. Um, I There is a moment in the when they decide to bind Gollum. It's, it's interesting to me the effect that different objects have had on different characters throughout the whole story. The effect that evil has had on good characters, the way the ring corrupts people, the way the ring... Uh, really calls to certain people, whatever. But then we have on the other side here, we have this elven rope, which literally burns and hurts Gollum as he wears it, which is essentially, you know, we, we view the elves generally as uh, as a good race, a race of good, and that their works of magic, or they wouldn't call it magic, mm-hmm. are are good. And it makes me wonder if it would have a similar effect on... Um, you know, an orc or something like that, because there's other things that are also described. Uh, elven blades, goblins and orcs fear them because they're forged by good. Right. And we have another item that is forged by good being used on an evil creature, and we see just how much they contrast against each other and how they just yeah. cannot seem to coexist. Yeah. I wonder if it has something to do with um, with Gollum being sort of a fallen creature who used to be, you know, presumably a a somewhat decent chap, at least a normal guy, Mm -hmm. um, and now is fallen into uh, 
wretchedness, I yeah. suppose. I wonder if that's got something to do with it. And so now, because you've seen, um, you know, somebody who starts out life just like everybody else, they're totally normal, and then they they choose to forsake whatever it was that, that held them on whatever path they were on. Maybe it was their parents, maybe it was their religion, maybe it was, you know, whatever their guiding moral compass was. But once they lead that path, if they do so in a in a sort of jarring or violent enough way, then to even look back and consider the life that they used to lead is painful. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they really fight against that sort of thing. So you know what I mean? Like a good person gone bad really hates that good stuff. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if that's got something to do with it. Mm, possibly. I can yeah. see that. I don't know. Anything else on that point? No, let that All right. Um, okay. So, maybe to remind us that Gollum is not so different from our hobbits, Tolkien has Gollum recite his fish song, mm-hmm. which uh, I like, and then Sam recites his Oliphant song, which I love. <laughs> I love that one. In fact, I was sitting there in my living room reading the Oliphant song, and then I turned to my wife and I was like, hey, you got to hear this. This is just fun. And then I read it and she was very unimpressed. <laughs> I don't know why, but um, yeah, I I love that um, <clears throat> that he does these in such close proximity, because like I said, I think it really does serve to remind us that Gollum is, for all intents and purposes, a hobbit, right? Mm-hmm. And so, as much as uh, as much as Sam would like to distance himself from Gollum, he he is. Uh, obviously they're not the same person, but he is of the same ilk. Yeah. And they had very similar upbringings. And look at, you know, look at what happened to this golem for making the wrong choices or whatever. And so it's a, it's a great reminder to us too, I think. Yeah, I think Sam even recognizes that though a bit because he says that um, when he's checking to see if Gollum is asleep, he says, uh, if I were, if I were Gollum, uh, I would be dead. Basically saying that if I were as bad as him, I would kill him right here with my sword right. and with my with my rope. Um, but there's something else about Smeagol that actually uh, interests me, and it's he gets to be a bit of a smart aleck at a certain point, um, and it actually teaches me something about the character that I hadn't really caught before or wasn't really showcased to me very well. Um, he, Sam is complaining about the smell of everything, and he says, you know, yes, master smells, uh, you smell, whatever. And then Smeagol turns around and says, yeah, and you stink. Sam smells you too. Sam smells too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I deal with it. And it made me realize that for so much of what I've been, I've come to believe about Gollum, um, for the most part, I've always thought of him as just this creature of impulse and instinct and that he's just following instinct and not necessarily you know he's intelligent enough to get around but kind of more sneaky than anything else Mm -hmm. in that moment where he had a quick comeback and he does it a couple times i realized Gollum is smarter than we've given him credit for generally yeah he's not just a he's not just a plot driver yeah he certainly is that but he's a character in his own right he has his own internal struggles and his own uh, Mm -hmm. three dimensions right green eye what is it? Green eyes, gray green eyes, eyes, and gold eyes. I think. Yeah, but yeah, the seeing that kind of even realized just how much, how um, much 
different he actually is from what I've pictured so far. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point to bring up. Um, So, uh, Sam, your favorite character. Mm -hmm. At least one of my favorite favorite characters. Uh, We love Sam, but I gotta say, he acts rather orcish in these chapters. Or at least he's starting to, and I think it's gonna get worse. But do you remember um, back when Merry and Pippin got captured and we had that whole chapter with the orcs? And one of the things I brought up was... um, the thing that sets them apart as mean-spirited and generally terrible people is the name-calling. Because, mm-hmm. you know, everything else, uh, with everything else going on, I, I felt like that really set them apart. They were calling each other rats and apes and whatnot. And here, that's what Sam is starting to do to Gollum. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, obviously he's very mistrustful of him and uh, has... Uh, you know, for good reason, has a lot of misgivings about what uh, Gollum's motivations are, but he can't seem to resist calling him names. What does he call him? He calls him, uh, you nasty, treacherous creature. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, uh, so, so Gollum refers to himself often as Smeagol, especially after he takes the oath, and this Smeagol side seems to be winning out in some ways. Uh, he refers to himself as Smeagol. Frodo even says uh, that he's willing to call him Smeagol if he prefers that. But Sam is having none of it. He calls him Gollum through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and so and Gollum is a uh, it's it's not his name. You're calling him a name when you call him that, right? Yeah. In a way, so it's uh, I I think it's um I hate to use the word interesting too much, but that's what it is. It's uh, it is of great interest to me. I'm going to come rushing to Sam's defense here a little bit. Okay, go ahead. Here's why I think it's different than being orcish. Yeah, he's he's calling him names a little bit, and yeah, that is a little bit orcish. There's a difference in motivation here. Mm-hmm. And to me, pretty much every other character, uh, like Aragorn, Boromir, Frodo, Gandalf, everyone, they've had to deal with the ring. That's right. their That's one of their big issues of having to deal with that. Sam doesn't really seem to be overly interested in that other than to help Frodo get it there. Right. Gollum or Smeagol is the ring quote unquote to Sam. Huh. He's what he has to deal with to to maintain his character. And to, to make say, it through the quest. To say that I'm still a good person or I'm able to go through this is to be able to not just follow that instinct to just kill him or get rid of him. And his, that instinct comes from his natural love and desire to protect his master. Yeah. Which is not something that the orcs aren't out there saying, you know, I'm doing this because I love Sauron. They do it because they love killing and because they have to, you know, right obey out of fear. Like that. So I think that's, uh, I think that's why I'm a little hesitant to say that Sam is going down the dark side. I think he's being tested and tried well, to go that. But. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying Sam's a bad person. I'm just saying he seems to be giving in to the temptation to be bitter and uh, petty. You know what I mean? A little bit of jealousy. Your master starts to take an interest in another character, too. Right, right. Well, and, uh, uh, oh, shoot. Who you know is bad for him. Who you know is bad. You know, that friend that comes along or that kid that comes along and you see your friend to just, you know, start taking up with him. And and you're going to go to jail if you keep hanging out with that kid. (laughs) Uh, For those of you who uh, aren't in the know, Ryan's parents were told very early on in our relationship to uh, not let him hang out with me because apparently I was a terrible influence. Bad influence influence on me. And now look at me. I'm sitting here in a room (laughs) podcasting. Uh, Yes. Um, 
having taken who knows what drugs and sired I don't know how many children. Um, all right. Well, that's the end of my points that I wanted to bring up. Well, I've got one final point. It actually Good. has to do with Sam because I learned the greatest life lesson I've learned from this book came in this section. Oh, really? And it came from Sam. Okay. And this is me trying to be serious for a minute here. We'll see how well it works. Yeah, that's not going to happen. So in uh, the passage of the Mar- marshes, um, they're talking about how Frodo is falling behind and everything. So I'm going to read this section here. Let's see. Sam's mind was mostly was occupied mostly with his master, hardly noticing the dark cloud that had fallen on his own heart. He put Frodo in front of him now, and kept a watchful eye on every movement of him, supporting him if he stumbled, and trying to encourage him with clumsy words. Now, what jumped out at me here? There's a dark cloud that's fallen on Sam. And sometimes for us, we hit a depressed point, or we hit a rut, or we hit whatever, and we get that dark cloud. What Sam does next, or what the next line is, is what I pulled from this as like the greatest lesson to learn. He puts someone in front of him. He puts Frodo in front of him to look to, to keep a watchful eye, to get, to pay, put his focus on someone outside of himself. Because he could have easily started brooding and been like, oh, this is so hard. I've got to deal with this creature. I got to, my master's, you know, slowing down or whatever. But in order to deal with the dark cloud that he's got, he put someone in front of him and he put his entire focus on making sure that that person was able to go, supporting him when he needed to with words, with actual going out and helping him get up and everything. So that's my that's my takeaway from this story here is if you got if you're dealing with something difficult or whether it be depression or or a rut or whatever turn outward, go get outward, put something in front of you to put your focus on yeah. and work on that. I think that's a great lesson that Sam Sam teaches here. Yeah, I think I, I'm sure it's easier said than done, but it's uh, something that could come with practice. Um, and it's uh, it's really uh, it's really easy. I, I well, not easy. It's easier to get the concept if you're married. You know, both of us are married. Mm-hmm. Luckily, not to each other. But um, don't be a terrible marriage. <laughs> Uh, but you know, it, it, so it's easy to know. Oh, who am I going to focus my attentions on? But if you're, you know, if you're in junior high, or if you're, you know, maybe your spouse passed away, or you've never been married, or something, or you know, maybe you don't have any kids to to focus on, you can still find somebody. If you, um, you know, if you have a best friend, focus on them. If you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, make sure that you do everything you can to to make uh, make their life easier. Right. Yeah, find someone, find something, find a cause, find something to get your focus outward. Um, there's nothing I find quite as easy as when I get stuck looking in on myself. The, you know, that's when I start to notice more flaws, more issues, and I just I build upon. Believe upon me, I notice those too. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, at least I know it's validated when I, someone else sees me too. <laughs> uh, well, should we wrap this bad boy up? Yeah. So now I want everybody listening to know that uh, this is how skilled a broadcaster I am. I actually finished that whole slice of strawberry cake uh, while we were talking and a giant glass of uh, two glasses of apple cider. (laughs) (laughs) And you didn't hear a dang thing. That's right. That's the magic of good radio, right? That's right. Um, Good. Well, let's sign off. Uh, Like I mentioned, I think I mentioned, uh, we're going to do book four in three chunks. So there goes chunk number one. Next, we're going to head to Faramir. 
if he's not my favorite character in the books, then he at least is on par with Sam. I love Faramir. Like, man crush love Faramir. <laughs> so we're going to go hang out with him, and uh, I think that's about it. Bring on Chunk 2. Hey guys, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to The Legendarium on iTunes. Uh, check us out at thelegendarium.podbean.com and also write us at thelegendariumpodcast at gmail.com.